Welcome to the Innovation and Diffusion podcast. I'm Raveda Gozan, a research economist at the Program on Innovation and Diffusion at the London School of Economics. And my co-host is... Do you want to introduce yourself, John? Oh, my name is John Van Rieden, and I am director of uh, POI and also a uh, professor at the London School of Economics. Uh, really excited to have our guest here, Petra Moser, um, who is you know, one of the world's uh, leaders in thinking about innovation and new ways to measure it and what determines it and the role of intellectual property. So we're really excited to have her, have her on the show and get her, get her views of things. She's quite famous with unorthodox combination of methodologies from economic history and applied microeconomics. And we're so happy to have you here today. I hope you're doing well. Welcome. Thank you so much. I even heard people saying about you, like, she's my crush. She's my sh- secret crush. Oh, <laughs> so you really, have, you really have fans among you know, oh, that's good. young researchers. <laughs> Um, I want to explain, you know, why I said unorthodox methodologies a bit, and I will go into uh, some questions about yourself and then your research. Basically, in this field, you know, if you look at the empirical work, uh, we see that the mainstream methodology is to use patents as a proxy for innovations. And it's one of the best proxies. No wonder we use it so much. But we also know that not all innovations are patented. And uh, and patents... We- and when you think about it, they're a form of an like innovative idea that is protected by the government and that provides you some monopoly rents over your innovation. And you, Petra, like you, you not only work on patents, but also you come up with creative ideas to understand the diffusion of innovation or innovation itself by using just like 19th century world fairs or copyrights and operas or enemy patents, for instance, that are expropriated due to war and more. The first question that I want to ask you before we dive into research questions is how do you develop these innovative ideas? So what drives your imagination? Uh, and can you tell us a bit about yourself and you know, how you come up with these research ideas? Thanks. That's a very nice way of, of, of looking at it. When I think about research, I usually just try to think about the world around me. I try to be open and think about what, what people care about and what I care about. And then I think about ways in which I can examine these questions using historical data. For example, as a graduate student, I read about differences in the direction of innovation across countries and across over time. Then I just wanted to know what drives these differences. And then I think about ways in which I could measure them. And of course, I first have a look at what other people are doing. But then I typically think about ways in which people have left traces in their decisions. So I think about economic history is a little bit like detective work. You want to find ways in which people have created the data that you'll need to answer a question. So you want to think about ways in which people have left traces that they didn't leave for you, but they just left because they were doing something else. So for example, when I was thinking about changes in the direction of innovation, I looked at these fairs, I, I read about these fairs uh, in, in, in a history class I took at Berkeley and how large these fairs were. And then I was thinking, well, if the fairs are so large and there are millions of people visiting, there has to be a catalog. So nobody wrote that catalog for me or for anybody else to study innovation. The catalog was written at first just to guide people through these fairs. And it was written 
because there's so many people and so many things. And my thought process was just like, oh, there should be a catalog because otherwise people would get lost. So I think the way I do economic history, I think about the traces that people could have left that I can use in my research. That's very nice. And you, I mean, you started talking about the world fairs. Actually, I was going to go into um, like some of the untraditional sources that you created for innovation work. Uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about those sources that you created. Maybe we can like summarize your work on operas or exhibitions like world fairs or gender. Can you, can you tell us a bit about in general, um, like a summary of your uh, untraditional sources you created for this area? I There, I don't think there's any unifying theme. I don't go out and think, oh, I want to create something that other people haven't done. I think if there's a data set that, that's there that you can just download and you can use it, that's great. You should always do that first. But often a lot of the questions that are really important and that haven't been answered have not been answered because we haven't had the data. And then you just have to be creative about it. You have to be creative and a little brave and not shy away from doing work that may actually fail. So you you mentioned these kind of success stories of my research. You mentioned the exhibition data, which in some ways succeeded because it was allowed me to answer the questions that I wanted to answer, but it took a really, really long time to collect and the opera data. Um, but often it doesn't work out. Right. Often you go and you want to collect this state, these, these massively large data sets are to measure innovation and it doesn't work out. So that's that's kind of not what you asked me. They didn't ask me about failure. So no, uh, actually, I was going to ask about that. I generally ask this question to our guests because, I mean, I was a PhD student just a year ago. And then when you look at, I mean, uh, such professors like you, like we're star economists um, and economic historians, like you look at the, the CVs and it's like, I, I mean, it's better to hear a bit, a bit like as a PhD student, for instance, like to hear about the failures of these people, because, you know, when you like write your thesis or when you work on papers, some of them or most of them do not work at all and you have yes. to quit and you should know when you're going to quit. So it's better to talk about these failures. Maybe we can talk about it like a little bit more at the beginning <laughs> so that's fine you can okay. you can okay. tell us a bit more about them yeah so a lot of the time I go out and I try to collect data or to answer a question that I find important and that hasn't been answered yet and I would say about half or two-thirds of the time it fails so for instance I spent like almost a year in the archives of the New York Stock Exchange pulling out the names of people who applied for seats at the New York Stock Exchange to document ethnic discrimination. And it was a really, I thought it was a great setup because uh, there was a change in ethnic preferences. Before World War One. Americans really loved Germans. Uh, then World War One came and they realized, wow, these people are really bad. So then uh, German Americans experienced some discrimination during the war. I thought this was really relevant because I think similar things happen today. We uh, Like you think about now, people don't. Some people don't listen to Russian music because of its association with Russia, and so the same thing happened in World War One. And so I thought, oh, I should really look at what happens. How, as an economist, how I can study uh, ethnic discrimination. So I go into New York Stock Exchange archive. It's like a real pain to collect the data. I spend a lot of time in the archives, and then the numbers just don't work out. They're just very, very few Germans uh, at the time who are applying for these seeds. So basically, when I do all my tests, then the, the sample size just gets very, very small. 
And then that's a, a data set that just doesn't really work out. What I do now is I try to start collecting a data set and I pick a question that I can answer with the data that I've already collected. For example, I've been, for the last eight years, I've been collecting data on scientists, on American scientists. And when I started out, I would have just maybe collected the entire data set and then started doing my analysis. Now I've become a little bit more strategic about this. I will collect part of the data, write a paper, answer that question, and then move on and collect more data. So in the case of the scientists, I wrote a paper first on immigration, then because I, I could collect the immigration variable fairly quickly, and then I collected a gender variable, so then I could uh, write that paper. And now I'm writing a paper on inequality uh, by matching the scientists with the census data, which took the longest period of time. So you want to you want to split the project into smaller parts so that you can have little pieces of success along the way. Yeah, it's like a thread. So you do one thing and then you continue with other small pieces. Um, it's a little bit like a really big hike. So I really, I love being outdoors and I love going to the mountains and doing these really long hikes. You also have pictures. I remember from your website, like you have pictures, probably you took them, like, right? You have mountain pictures on your website. I find mountains very soothing. I, there's no way I could be unhappy in the mountains. <laughs> Um, so since we talked about immigration and kind of discrimination, I bet you talked about Russia or German immigrants. Maybe we can start talking about that. So you have really nice papers on immigrations, especially Jewish-German um, emigres to the United States. There is always a political argument, like right now, back then, um, about immigrants with, you know, with the negative connotation. But we see that immigrants can play a really essential role in encouraging innovations by bringing, you know, a foreign accumulated knowledge. So can you tell us the relationship between immigration and innovation? And what do we see in history about this? And what do you find in your work? I started thinking about immigrants, not related to any of these papers, but when I was doing research on the United States on, and on American industrialization. When the United States industrialized, they copied lots of British innovations. And Britain realized this very quickly, in particularly in the field of cotton spinning. And Britain passed a set of laws to protect their technological advantage at the time. Uh, and these laws imposed heavy fines on people who exported British technologies. But then something I was really struck by is that Britain had a higher set of fines for exporting people than for exporting technologies. And so then I started thinking about this. And like often it takes several years, something is in, in your head and you just sort of think about it. Is this, this is a small fact and it's it's a very, it really struck me that they were much more concerned about the people than about the patents, which, I, which is what I was working on at the time. So the policy that they imposed told me that it may have been the people rather than the technologies, rather than the patents that were the most important for a country to catch up. And then I, so I, I, I started thinking about this and um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from Germany and I'm in the United States. So it's a, the natural point to look at that was this massive way 
wave of German Jewish immigrants after the Nazi party took power in Germany in 1933. And so you have a system in which anybody who has a Jewish grandparent loses their job because German university system is a public system. German university system was subject to a law that dismissed from public service anyone who had one Jewish grandparent. So lots of Jewish professors lost their jobs. And one thing, when you do economic history, you have you go in with one set of notions. And so I went and I was like, oh, okay, so these people get dismissed and then they come to the United States. Well, that's actually not what happened. So most of them actually wanted to go to Britain. So it's it's not that they were all like storming to come to the United States. It's a lot of them actually were like, oh, you don't want to go so far. And Britain is a better place to uh, do research, uh, at least at the time. So, so they wanted to go to Britain. But some of them went to the United States. And, and so what we find is that in the fields in which the United States received one of these immigrant professors, U.S. invention, so invention by domestic U.S. inventors, went up by about 30% relative to other fields in which they didn't get one of these, these scientists. And so that's like, that's like the first project I, I worked on in this field. And, and so this is kind of a success story of American innovation. But, and then a lot of innovation in the United States is supposed to be immigrant-driven, or people think of it as being immigrant-driven, and there's definitely a lot of data to support these, these correlations, at least. But there's one really infamous episode of immigration history in the United States, which are the 1920s quota acts. So in the late 19th century, the makeup of immigrants who arrived in the United States changed dramatically. Before the 1880s, it was mostly Germans and Anglo-Saxons who came to the United States. After, uh, in the late 19th century, the makeup of immigrants, of new arrivals changed, and it became mostly Italians and Eastern Europeans who fled poor economic conditions and also unrest and war and violence in their home countries. And, and the, the older immigrant groups didn't like these newcomers. They said they were dirty. They said they had bad institutions, that they carried diseases. They called them vermin. And in the 1920s, the U.S., passed a, a set of laws that said, okay, we want immigrants, but we want the right kind of immigrants. We want Nordic immigrants. And what they said is that they said, like, we can have immigrants and we want, uh, we want the good immigrants. We want the highly skilled immigrants, but we don't want these low-skilled Italians. We don't want these low-skilled Eastern Europeans. And what I found really interesting is that they thought that they could do this. They could get away with this. It's like, okay, we'll take the professors and we'll take the university students, but we don't want the rest of them because they're riffraff and they're, they're dirty and they stink and we don't want them. And to me, it was really striking that a country would think that they could say like, look, I don't want people who look like you. I want you because you're smart, but I don't want anybody else from your country because you're gross. And so essentially, what, what we look at in this paper is we look at whether the U.S. actually succeeded in getting the good immigrants, uh, the, the high-skilled immigrants, and while they were trying to keep out the low-skilled immigrants by imposing this, what was 
call it a quota system. And so what's really important to keep in mind is something that most people in, for, have forgotten, is that this quota system was in place between the 1920s, between 1921 and 1924, when these quotas were passed in 1965. So for a large part of the 20th century, U.S. immigration was regulated by this quota system, which only allowed immigrants uh, from a very small set of countries, essentially saying like, look, if you are Nordic, you are allowed in. And if you're not Nordic, we don't want you. This actually really hurt American uh, innovation, American innovation by U.S. born innovators. Basically, they didn't get they, not only did they not get um, got some professors, but they got very few. They got many fewer students. The way I think about this is like people who are already in the United States, if they experience an anti-immigrant policy, might still stay in the United States. Like a professor may still stay in the United States because they're established here. They may have been married. They have tenure. They have their friends, so they stay. But it's the young people who don't come. And what we see is that. When the U.S. had these national origin quotas in place, lots of students, lots of young people decided not to go, and some of them actually went to Canada. I was going to ask you what your views are on the financial incentives, and I, the reason I ask is when you, you know you earlier said that um, you know I think in, in historically the British or the English tried to stop inventors and engineers and textiles leaving the country and taking their ideas with them. So the French came up with an innovative solution, I've heard, which they kidnapped uh, some of these British engineers and took them off to France against their will. But the Americans had well, a much better strategy that um, they actually sent people over with money and uh, bribed the inventors to leave and come to America with large amounts of money rather than the French uh, approach. And uh, um, certainly the, uh, the Tim Lunick is an economic historian I spoke to said that was a much more effective uh, method. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't the, think you uh, can force in. people. I don't think you can force people to cooperate with you and teach you things because they will withhold information. You will only get as much as they have to give you. But but you're right. The US uh, did much better. So this most of this happened in the late 18th century. Uh, the, the 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 I think the famous example, the prime example is, is Slater the Trader. Uh, when the U.S. had basically bribed him to come over, uh, this young man who uh, I think at the time was 21 years old, and he faced really uh, large fines and, and imprisonment in Britain uh, for leaving the country with these secrets. Uh, but the appeal of the United States was so large that he disguised himself as a farmer, went on a ship and says, oh, no, I know nothing about technology. And then... Uh, help build the American cotton mills. So I think financial incentives are a way better way, a, a much better way, financial incentives are a much better way of attracting people than what you mentioned, forcing people to come come to your country. I don't, I think that's really works. Actually, so on the, on the subject of, of forcing people, I'm working on a project right now where the US actually did force people to come to the United States and it also helped. So after... World War II, the U.S. Uh, had a program called Operation Paperclip, where they targeted Nazi scientists and basically told them, report to this marketplace at 8 a.m., packed light, we're going to the U.S. 
So they would take uh, they would take Nazi scientists, some of them actually convicted war criminals, and I'm not sure whether they forced them uh, to come to the United States, but there wasn't much of a choice. So they just told them, here are your orders. You are reporting to the United States tomorrow. And I... What we are looking at, we're looking at whether they actually, whether these, the, the arrival of these Nazi scientists also benefited U.S. innovation, and it looks like it very much did. So sometimes forcing works. In general, it's better to get have people come on their own free will and give them financial incentives. I'm thinking of Doctor Strangelove and uh, the, the, the uh, Peter Sellers yes. character of that, who is a German working on nu- on nuclear, the nuclear program, which would exactly. fit into your your example. <laughs> We can also talk about maybe going back to the basic notions. So we talked about, you know, the patent system or, the, you know, the immigrants. Um, so one thing I want to discuss with you, because sometimes we take the patent system as given because now, like all the countries have a patent system. But is it a necessary condition for innovations to have patents? Um, is it possible to, for instance, observe a country without a patent system, perform better in innovations um, than a country with a patent system? In my research on 19th century patent laws and their effects on innovation, the countries that did not have patent laws, in particular the Netherlands after 1869 and Switzerland and Denmark did amazingly well without patents. One reason for that was that in the absence of patent laws, these countries were free to adopt foreign innovations. One of my favorite examples of this is margarine. So margarine was a French invention that Dutch inventors were able to copy freely and improve because there was no patent, there was no licensing in their country. So they went to talk to the original inventor, uh, Mesh-Maries, and asked, oh, how do you do this? And what are the benefits uh, of, of, of this technology? And they took that information home with them and improved on it and then protected it by secrecy. So this is another uh, important element of, of the story. Sometimes inventors don't need patents because alternatives are, are effective. If you compare patents with an alternative such as secrecy, you want to think about how long does the patent last and how long is my invention going to be valuable? So most patents expire between 15 and 20 years, uh, whereas secrecy, if done well, lasts forever. Famous example of that is, is Coca-Cola, which was invented in the late 19th century. Had it been protected by a patent, the invention had would have gone in the public domain before the Coca-Cola company would have any of the benefits of developing this drink. So we don't know the recipe of Coke even now, right? I mean, I'm thinking about it, but we don't know how, what, how it's made. There's a, there, there are competing stories. Some say it's kept stories. in the vault. <laughs> Others say that, oh, you could reverse engineer it. I don't, so this is also interesting, or is it important? Because at this point, Coca-Cola probably doesn't need this secret anymore. Because even if I were to develop Say, if John and I decided, oh, we know the secret recipe, let's start, let's make Coca-Cola, we couldn't do it. We need a distribution network, we need to set up these factories, and we would have to create somehow this brand uh, the, of, of this, these 
beautifully red cans and the image that we could never recreate. So one, of our, one of our colleagues has made honest tea, which is an interesting story. And now story. we couldn't make honest tea, right? <laughs> it, 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 but honesty is, is is great, but it's not Coca Cola. And but, it, but and now even now we couldn't just come in and say like, oh, let's make honesty. That's already one of those. So patents are a one way of uh, of protecting intellectual property. They are not the only way. They are most effective uh, when used in combination with other things like building complementary assets, being first on the market, an effective marketing campaign, trademarks. Uh, and secrecy whenever you can. Uh, and so yeah. so countries mm-hmm. that don't have patents can still be innovative because even though they don't have patents, they have all these other mechanisms. So I think when we want to think about patents, we want to think about patents not as the only mechanism, which is something economists like to do. A lot of our models have patents as the mechanism to create incentive for innovation. I think that's often economic models have to be simple to to get us somewhere, to get us predictions. But I think this is one case where the simplification is so stark that it becomes not very useful. If there were no patents, I mean, secrecy could work maybe in a way, but what would be the problems regarding the direction of innovation? Because not all the industries probably, like we talked about Coca-Cola, they have a secret recipe, um, even though there are stories. But back at the time, the um, 19th century, 20th century, what would be the problems about the direction of innovation as secrecy might not hold for all the industries? So, so again, you want to think about patents as one of the mechanisms that protects intellectual property. And then the need for patents varies with the effectiveness of these alternatives. In an industry where you can keep things secret very easily, you don't need patents. So, for example chemicals in the 19th century were easily protected by secrecy. Think about dye stuffs, because no matter how hard these people tried, they could not reverse engineer indigo, for example, which was incredibly valuable because the scientific tools at the time were not up to reverse engineering the production process. So you have an industry like chemicals on the one hand, where it's really impossible to reverse engineer things. And you have agricultural machinery where I look at the machine and even John and I could probably, with a little bit of help from people who are a little bit more handy than us, reverse engineer some of these technologies. So when you see it, you can reverse engineer it in some industries. Now, in those type of industries, you may need patents, or at least you're going to be differentially more dependent on patents. And in a country that does uh, have patent laws, inventors are free to choose across these different technologies where they can go. So if you think about a young person, say an engineer who says like, okay, where do I want to innovate? If they, when, when, when they're just starting out, they can choose where to go. And in a country that doesn't have patents, what, what, I've, what I've seen in my research on, on 19th century patent laws is that at a time when Switzerland and Denmark did not have patents, a lot of their innovations went into industries where secrecy was effective so that inventors did not need patents. So what, what you see is that in the absence of patent laws, innovation focuses on a specific set of industries 
in which inventors don't need patents. So you may have the same number of innovation, but the type of innovations that are created are different in countries without effective patent protection because inventors have to find ways around the absence of the patent system. So since we talked about um, reverse engineering, when we look at developing economies and even, um, I mean, we see trade secret thefts or online piracy or, you know, widespread infringement. When we think about the U.S., for instance, like which overtook Great Britain at the time and other countries, did we see similar patents like in the U.S. as well? And um, so do you think like a stronger patent mechanism allow for a faster catch-up or a slower catch-up, you know, between the developing economies and developed economies? Countries that are lagging behind in general will be better off having a weaker patent system. And hmm. in the United States, the founding fathers, like if you think about George Washington, recognized that. He, they were very... They're very concerned about offering patents because what they said is that if we have a patent system, Washington in particular said, if we have a patent system, then we can't take innovations from abroad. They had, they, 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 I think they were a little bit better at naming it. They said that the patent system would slow the introduction of useful innovations from abroad, which basically is like piracy. So they're like, well, look, if we have a patent system, then these British people can come over here and they can patent their innovations and then we can't take them anymore. So that's no good. We don't want that. And then Jefferson found a way around that and said, okay, how about we have this, we create a patent system, but we create it in a way that it protects our domestic inventors. But then for the British people, we don't really want them to have protection. So we're only going to offer protection to domestic inventions, to U.S. Uh, citizens and residents, but not foreigners. So the U.S. at the time followed the system of setting up their institutions in a way so that they could actually copy foreign innovations. So they set up their innovate, they set up their patent laws to facilitate piracy. And I think today we tend to forget that. It's, I think it's just, it's just a useful thing to keep in mind that mm -hmm. this, historically many countries grew like that, caught up to the technology frontier by copying foreign inventions. So then can we say that we're kicking away the ladder that these countries climbed up, you know, for current developing economies? It's a, I mean, it's hard to say because it's a, a little word. bit, it's like, it's a, it's a great expression, but it, it, I think it's more like a case of forgetting history. So it's not that people are aware of this and say, oh, yes, we, we developed this way and we don't want anybody else to develop the same way. It's more like they kind of usefully forget that this is how economic development happened in the United States. Not all of it, but in large measure, like in large measure and in very important industries. So the U.S. developed through piracy in textiles, which was one of the leading sectors of the U.S. economy uh, when it industrialized. Could a British person who come over and set up an American factory in a, te a textile mill or something and then claim a patent in America and yes, get to that's keep it exactly that way? What, that's exactly what Slater did. So he, so he, he copied these... Slater the uh, traitor. <laughs> yes, Slater the traitor. That's exactly what he did. He came over, 
to the United States with blueprints of British company of British uh, water powered cotton spinning tools, and uh, then set them up in the United States, and patented his improvements. And then they're now proudly displayed in the Smithsonian, not 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 next to the British ones that they copied, but they're like, look, <laughs> these American technologies. And so I, I show some of these images in my book, because when you look at the images of the technology of the American technology and the British technology, you see how similar they are. But then, yeah, you could right. patent it. Actually, this is not so surprising because in the the first patent system in the world, the Venetian system was set up with the explicit goal of encouraging the importation of foreign technologies. So Venice had fallen behind and they were desperately trying to find a way to attract skilled artisans into, uh, into their republic. And they set up a patent system. They're like, hey, if you come here with your technology, we'll, we'll give you sole ownership of it for a period of like five or 10 years. And so the origins of the patent system were actually more about copying the button about anything else. It was more about the importation of foreign technologies. It wasn't, didn't start out with this lofty idea of protecting innovation. It was more like, hey, how can we get people to move here with foreign technologies? Okay, I want to ask this question to both John and Petra. So I want to ask this question to you both. Um, if you had a chance uh, to make the patenting system better, what would you do or what would you suggest? Who would like to answer first? John, would well, you like to answer well, first? Petra is much more knowledgeable than, than I am on this, so I, I hesitate to say things. I mean, you know, there's a few you know, clear things I think we could uh, we could improve. I mean, I think one, one would be... Um, and there has been improvement in the US system, but you know, for a long time there were too many very low quality patents which were getting protection. So, and you know, basically it was left up to the courts to litigate um, who had the intellectual property rights and who didn't. So, improving the resources in the patent system and uh, making it harder to get poor quality, you know, making the standards tougher would be a generally good thing, I think. Um, a second thing I think would also be around disclosure of, of more information so i think especially around lots of kind of pharmaceuticals for for example that there's a lot of information which is not disclosed i think by having greater disclosure of information that would actually i mean in principle the patent system is meant to um be a way of you know you you get a you reveal information that's what the patent is and you get some temporary monopoly protection for it but in exchange for that you reveal the information which enables other people to build on that knowledge in reality, it's much harder to do that because the information which is revealed in the patent is very limited. So I think that a system which actually effectively reveals more information would allow uh, more people to build on the, the, you know, the knowledge, the shoulders of giants, as, as Newton said. My two things I would change would be I would make patents a lot narrower. We've talked a lot about patents, but I have also studied copyrights a lot. And the, my research on copyrights was partly motivated by just wanting to do something else. I started working on patents and then 
you should read all about these technologies. And at some point you think, okay, I want to do something else. And so that's when I started wanting to look at music and books and other things to, and copyrights are protected by these things. And then I was thinking about copyrights as an alternative way to protect intellectual property. So when you compare copyrights and patents, the most striking difference is that copyrights are extremely narrow. So copyright will only protect, for instance, a specific opera that has been written, say, The Barber of Seville, whereas a patent would protect the broader idea of an idea about a barber. And in my research, what I found is that whenever a patent is really broad, that's when the big downsides of patents become visible. An example of that in the 1850s was a, a patent for a, a needle in a sewing machine that would up, go up and down. So it's a horizontal needle. And then there's actually an equally broad patent on a flat sewing surface. So basically now in, in the 1850s, you had two patents, one on a flat sewing surface, one on a needle going up and down that were so broad that it was impossible to build a sewing machine without infringing on that patent. And that is one of the mm. characteristics of the patent system that makes it really, really pernicious. So essentially, if I can't innovate without infringing on some other patent, there's going to be a lot of litigation. And, and so at the time, that was resolved with a patent pool where all these firms combined their patents, which has a lot of other problems um, coming along because essentially you have this massive uh, combination of market power. But the, the underlying problem is really these really, really broad patents. So if you have, pat if you have a broad patent, uh, like a flat sewing surface or a needle going up and down, it becomes very difficult for somebody to enter this industry without infringing on that patent. With copyrights, you don't have that issue because the copyright is so narrow that you get really just protection on your specific innovation. And so when you compare patents and copyrights, patents have the advantage of being relatively short-lived. So a patent is only valid for uh, about 20 years. There are ways to, like, to uh, apply for a new patent, uh, but in principle, that shouldn't be possible. So it should be like limited protection for a short period of time. So I think there are people who say patents are generally mm -hmm. bad. I would be more willing to say really broad patents are bad. And then when you think about copyrights, copyrights that are extremely long-lived are also very bad for Problematic. Mm -hmm. So you want a narrow and short property right. You don't want no property right, but you want property rights that are well-defined and as narrow as possible. Uh, so they, they just protect this specific innovation and not everything around it, then you want them to be short-lived. You also have worked on gender and socioeconomic status um, in terms of innovations. Like, what do you find in, um, in, in terms of, you know, uh, like gender and socioeconomic status uh, in terms of like innovations? So in terms of gender, uh, at, at least historically, what I find looking at inventors in the 20th century is that in periods when mothers took care of children, when the burden of childcare fell mostly on women, it held mothers back in this process 
of publications and patents. So I've written a paper on mm -hmm. the effects of motherhood on publications, but we ran the exact same tests for patents and you get the same results where basically uh, when while women take care of small children, they become less likely to participate in both publications and patents. And, and this was for a period mm -hmm. when women did most of the work, when basically the, 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 the division of labor amongst, amongst men and women was very clear so that women would take care of young kids. And so what we see is that part of that inequality, a large part of the inequality between men and women comes from this disproportionate cost of raising children, bearing and raising children. So both pregnancy mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and having uh, and, and taking care of kids. Yeah, so maybe then one of the suggestions could be in, in addition to having a maternal leave, a good balanced paternal leave is also I mean should also be introduced. Even now I think the distribution of the uh, of the workload is probably on mothers compared to fathers. So maybe that could be one of the policy suggestions. So for academics at least when mothers and fathers get the same paternal leave what, what the research has shown is that this actually disadvantages mothers. And this is probably because, so at least historically, mothers still do most of the work, but now fathers get the sleeve. And so fathers can actually, at least in academia, can do some of that work because our work is so unstructured that you can kind of say, hey, I'm taking care of a kid and then still keep working. Whereas, hmm. and, uh, whereas women still have to give birth. There's, there's nothing you can do about True. that. <laughs> and I mean, I think really this, this issue of childbirth, like pregnancy and, and childbirth, and then also now there's so much pressure of nursing kids, that still falls on women. A better policy would be to make childcare freely available. Mm -hmm. so, I see your point, yeah. Right. So basically what mm -hmm. you want is you want a policy that protects women, uh, gives women time off for pregnancy and childbirth and also gives them so some credit for, hey, you know, if you're nursing a child, you basically have to have to do this uh, every like three hours, including nights. And that uh, influences productivity in a very bad way. And so make allowances for that and then also just make it easy for both men and women to say drop their kids off at work i mean if i could be a social planner the one thing i would do is i would just make sure that every assistant professor who regardless of gender has a kid can come and and drop their kid off at high quality childcare on campus i agree yeah and, and that's a policy that helps both that helps both men and women and I mean, I, I, I don't know how costly it would be. This is, I guess, this is always the issue. But it cannot be any more costly than losing so many people, uh, having them drop out because they need to take care of kids. To me, it just seems like a no-brainer that you want to give uh, that universities and, and also companies should create a high-quality childcare place on their campus so that the people who work for them can just drop their kids off, go straight to work, not worry about the kid, and True. then bring, pick them up again at the end of the day. 
it should increase productivity, right? It just cuts down on all the mm-hmm. other issues that people have. That's so I would true. Just say have childcare. <laughs> just offer childcare. Like every university should have have like offer very easily accessible childcare to anybody who has kids. I think yeah, I think that would be great because I was uh, listening to a policy discussion at LSE last week. So what, that was one of the main discussions, like how to arrange the paternal leaves and at the same time funding or uh, increasing the number of schools um, and the quality of those schools or kindergartens. I mean, all all the questions on research and and all the things you explained. Like, I think every everything was really interesting. But I also want to talk a little bit about uh, which I call them I call them cheesy questions. I want to talk about your experiences uh, in academia and your suggestions maybe because every year you know there are PhD candidates working on economic history um, have you ever uh, been treated as like you're a historian but not an economist or you know even if you haven't had that before what would your suggestions be to the job market candidates who work on economic history or their job market paper is an economic history paper and might face such questions like Are you a historian or an economist? Uh, and, and, and in general, do you have suggestions for the job market candidates? I think, honestly, that's a very odd question. I have been asked that question, are you an economist or are you a historian? And I find it a very odd question. I, yeah, I, mean, I have an yeah. economics PhD, so that kind of makes me an economist. <laughs> I chose not to get a history of PhD. Instead, I chose to... Uh, be an economist. So I'm an economist. But within economics, my methodology is economic history, which means that I will collect historical data to answer policy relevant questions, or questions that are that I think are important to understand for economists. And I think if somebody asks you that question, it's more informative about the person who asks the question than it is about you, right? So it tells you that they want you to do or be a specific thing. And you want to ask yourself, well, do I want, I, I would actually just ask them back, like, well, what is it that you need from me? What, how, what is it that you want me to do? Or how could I succeed in your organization? Mm-hmm. It's, I find it generally very unproductive to pigeonhole people because as scientists it's our job to think about novel ways to test important questions to answer important questions and it's very unproductive to just think of yourself in one way or the other so just think about oh i just do this i do these type of methods And I'm not going to ask any questions that don't need, that don't use the tools that I already know. So you want to be open. So for instance, when I started being an economic historian, I collected a lot of my data by hand. Uh, Whereas now, a lot of the work that I do could be called data science. Uh, And actually, some of my students, the undergrads, and even I... For some of the graduate students go into data science because now a lot of what we do is we collect these massive amounts of data and we process them. So a lot more of my job today relates to programming and relates to speeding up code 
I, I cannot tell you how often we talk about how we can optimize code to run faster. Now, this was not what I thought I would do when I signed up to do economic history. And you want to think about the questions that interest you. As a student, you want to think about the questions that interest you and then think about the best ways to answer those questions and not be too concerned about how this will affect uh, whether people see you as an economic historian or an applied microeconomist. Yeah, and I think based on your description on, you know, your data collections, you, you also, you follow your passions too. So you wonder about something like the, the example that you gave about New York Stock Exchange. You went there for a year, you collected data. So you have that passion and you follow your passion. And sometimes even though the projects fail, sometimes you create really beautiful papers. So I think um, I agree with that. And otherwise it would be too boring and then you wouldn't really have a fire in you that will, you know, make that project successful. What I would recommend for a student to do when they think about the direction of their own research is to really work on stuff that interests you. So I always tell my students that they should work on what they find exciting, not what I find exciting. Because if they go on the job market looking exactly like me, they're not going to get a job. Because nobody wants another Petra Moser. They want somebody who has, is well-trained and who asks new questions. So you don't want to be, you don't want to be like somebody else. You want to be your own person because you have to create something that's new and you're not going to do that when you're imitating somebody else. Maybe we can say we should also have a personality in terms of research that is going to be your uh, brand maybe. So every person sees things. And so younger people see problems that are relevant to their generation. And that's what they should work on. Not whatever their advisors worked on, because those are kind of things that maybe were relevant like when, when, when they were younger, or it's, 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 a, it's, a different, it's a different personality, right? It's a different, you, you have to do, yeah, you always have to do your own thing. Like yeah. If you think about creative people, in the arts, in technology, in tech and biotech, the ones who really become superstars and become super successful are the ones who just did their own thing. They said like, okay, this is how people have done it so far. Let me do it in a completely different way. And I think that's what you want to try for. That's right. And I think, but most of the students probably fall into the trap that, you know, if your advisor, for instance, is not excited about your project, which you find really exciting, then that can also make you think about, okay, maybe I shouldn't work on this question because my advisor isn't that excited about my project. So there are also such, I remember those discussions among PhD students, for instance. You want to take all kinds of feedback. So if somebody tells you that they are not excited about it, Ask them why, because often, so the fact that somebody's not excited about your project in itself is not that informative because that's just one person who doesn't like your project, but you want to ask them why they're not excited about it. And for instance, they might be not excited about it because there's a very similar paper out there already. And then that's a very good reason to abandon the project. If, if your advisor is not excited about it because it doesn't align with their research interests, that's probably something you can ignore because you don't want to be exactly like your advisor. But if it's something that they're not excited about because somebody else has already written a related paper, then that's a really good, that's a really good point to listen to. 
And maybe one last quite one last question um, could be that: What are the questions, or um, in this area, uh, or in the in in your area, that we still that we still need an answer to? So, what I mean in general, I see that collecting new data is really important. Um, in economic history. So uh, maybe some of the questions are not answered because there is no data, but do you, and maybe you can also talk about maybe your future projects, but what are those questions or areas that we still need an answer to? Uh, and that could maybe a something that these people or researchers or um, PhD students even uh, maybe can look at. So my, my work follows in three of four broad categories. So is I work on patents, I work on copyrights, I work on immigration. Now, more broadly, I'm working on science, on understanding the determinants of American success in science. And so in the first two areas on patents and copyrights, I think if you have a choice between working on patents and working on copyrights, I would work on copyrights because there are so many papers thinking about different aspects of patents, but there's much, much less work on copyrights. And copyrights are going to be more and more, uh, copyrights are going to be increasingly important because so much of what we consume is protected by copyright rather than patents. When my kids ask for anything for their birthday, typically it's something that's like a game. It's, it's, it's mm -hmm. typically a digital project that is protected by copyrights rather than patents. And so I think a lot of what we consume increasingly is going to be protected by copyrights. And also we just know a lot less. So a lot of the really important policy questions are in that area and we just need so much more evidence are to guide policy on that topic. So my research on copyrights has only scratched the surface of this area. So the the, the questions that I have been able to answer with my papers are very simple. So I've looked at whether copyrights affect price. I've looked at whether copyrights encourages the number of innovations measured through our operas, Italian operas. And I've looked at the effects of copyrights on science, on follow-on innovation in science. Those are just very broad questions that there's a lot more nuance around that and there are many many unanswered questions so i think much more work needs to be done on copyrights and then another field in which i think we need more answers is immigration and, and that's actually a field where there is already a lot of work there's a lot of work already on immigration and innovation but again a lot of that work is uh, at a very broad level. So my work just looks at the effects of high-skilled immigrants on innovation. But there's lots of other lots of research needed on other types of innovation. Most of immigration is lower-skilled, lower and we need more evidence on that. And then when you think about intellectual property rights, in addition to copyrights, I would also say we need more research on the effects of trademarks because... Say going back to the example of Coca-Cola, trademarks are incredibly important because people will buy a specific good because it's associated with a brand name. And because of that, trademarks offer protection that can be complementary to patents. And we just don't know enough about that yet. 
And then something that actually relates to John's work. So John has found with his co-authors that people who come from lower income families are less likely to be inventors in the United States. Mm-hmm. Now, some research that I'm doing right now is like, how does that actually look for scientists? And so what we do is we match our records of scientists with the census, with historical census data, and we show that there's actually a lot of inequality in science. One important question is like, how can we reduce inequality in science? And that can be race, that can be socioeconomic status, or it can be gender. Ultimately, we want to have as many people to participate in science as possible. So we don't just want uh, scientists to come from a small part of the population, high-income parents, white males. We need to have much, much broader participation in science because we want to Mm -hmm. include people who have good ideas, no matter where they come from. So that's one thing. So we want to have the greatest number of innovations, but you also want to have innovations that reflect these, this diversity of experiences that people have when they come from different parts of society. Your explanation reminded me that women did not have property rights, for instance, in the 19th century, and you basically lose 50% of the population. You leave them out of the equation and try to have a very small subset of people inventing institutions in that sense uh, matter. Yeah, you guys, you guys should come to that be terrific uh, yeah. interview, Petra. And I'll hopefully see you next week, maybe. At, at Thank the you. Yeah, I'll be here. Thank you very much, Petra, for joining us today. It was a delightful no conversation. Uh, and I hope our listeners also enjoyed the talk. If you have questions, comments, you can email us through lsepodcast at gmail.com. Or if you're a good social media user and would like to get in touch with us, you can DM me through at poid underscore cast or through my personal account at Reveda Gozan. Thank you very much uh, and have a great day, Petra. See you in the next episode. Bye-bye.